Well, thank you very much, Hilary, for a, for a very warm welcome, and thank you also to Louisa for organising this. Um, and thank you to Alexander for coming along, which is um, fantastic and very fortunate. Um, I actually feel I'm playing truant a little bit because I ought to be working on Walter Pater and editing Walter Pater and, um, and the paper I will be giving to you does not even mention Walter Pater at all. Um, I think I've been working on Pater for such a long time that I need a little, um, a little space which is Pater free. Um, and um, the paper I will be presenting um, is part of a, a volume, a collection of essays on uh, Arthur Simmons um, which Elisabeth Sotto and Stefano Evangelista are putting together um, after a Simmons conference in Venice last year. Um, and I was given very free reins to talk about uh, Simmons and the visual arts. Um, and um, flicking, flicking through Simmons's writings, um, I decided that I wanted to work on, on Simmons and sculpture and dance. So, so that's, that's what you'll be um, hearing about. Anna's very kindly uh, agreed to, um, to change the slides. So could we have the first slide, please, Anna? Um, I'm going to start with a quotation from, um, from Simmons. Rhythm, precisely, is a balance, a means of preserving equilibrium in moving bodies. The human body possesses so much volume, it has to maintain its equilibrium. If you displace its contents here, they may shift there. The balance is regained by an instinctive movement of self-preservation. Now, these observations occur at the very beginning of Arthur Simmons's essay on the French sculptor Auguste Rodin, um, a text which opens his very influential volume, Studies in Seven Arts, which was published in 1906. And by the time Simmons published his book, he was already a very well-established poet and critic who had been moving, I think, fairly effortlessly within the English and the French avant-garde for the past two decades, organising lecture tours in England for Paul Verlaine, producing symbolist poetry uh, in the Rhymers Club alongside uh, William Butler Yeats and Stausen and Lionel Johnson, um, and also writing reams of journal articles on music, dance, painting and literature for both English and French periodicals. Simmons's attempts to define the links um, and differences between those seven arts, and they're the seven arts of sculpture, painting, architecture, music, drama, pantomime and dance, um, begin and end with a celebration of rhythm in sculpture and dance. From the opening essay on Auguste Rodin to the, um, you might say, very all-embracing exit, a short essay called The World as Ballet, Simmons hails the vital principle of a pulsating rhythm um, as the unifying force which connects all the spatial arts. Simmons, I think, is essentially interested in what you might call a kind of economy of form when he discusses both sculpture and dance. Um, an economy of form which I think in many ways is also akin to what he's trying to do in his own poetry. In the gestures of both sculpture and dance, he finds a compressed form of expression which resides in rhythm. And his initial observation of Baudin's ability to capture rhythm um, in a single ge gesture is full of insight. So rhythm and sculpture are related to space, to balance and structure, and anything involving three-dimensional bodies, be it architecture, sculpture or dance, must take gravity and the interrelationship between the horizontal and the vertical into account. In the course of Simmons's volume, his representation of rhythm evolves from a very physical precondition of human balance 
into an evanescent image of the dancer as an image of human transcendence. The very conclusion of his book, uh, in this brief chapter called The Whirlless Ballet, celebrates dance as an art form with the power, as Simmons says, of letting humanity drift into a rhythm so much of its own. Um, and it focuses the reader's attention on the image of the solitary female dancer. And if we could have the next one, Anna, that'd be great. So this is how he ends his volume. He says, nothing is stated. There is no intrusion of words used for the irrelevant purpose of describing. A world rises before one. The picture lasts only long enough to have been there. And the dancer, with her gesture, all pure symbol, evokes from her mere beautiful motion, idea, sensation, all that one need ever know of event. There before you she exists in harmonious life, and her rhythm reveals to you the soul of her imagined being. Now, echoing Keats, Keats's uh, Ode on a Grecian Urn, and prefiguring Yeats, um, Simmons's dancer never, I think, lets us know the dancer from the dance, that she's both idea and image in the moment of her performance, encapsulating what Frank Commode would call the romantic image. Sculpture and dance are both spatial arts, engaging in and exploring three-dimensional space. The one is solid and static, the other is evanescent and ephemeral. Yet the state of sculpture and dance at the fin de siècle was one of constant approximation, as dancers and sculptors collaborated, befriended each other, and exhibited next to one another in the great Exposition Universelle in Paris in 1900. Have the next one. So I'd like to discuss Simmons's lifelong admiration of Rodin as the greatest of modern sculptors within the context of the development of modern dance with Paris as its indisputable epicentre. At the turn of the century, American dance pioneers like Louis Fuller and Isadora Duncan headed straight for Paris with London as a kind of transitional stepping stone. And with us status as a French and European celebrity sculptor with an expert knowledge of the expressive potential of the female body made him an obvious port of call. Antiquity and modernity merged in his art as it did in the innovative scenographies and choreographies of Fuller and Duncan. Having studied the movement of the female form during the 1890s, when he was a critic of the dance in the theatre in London, Simmons discovered Rodin's ability to capture the movement of the female body within the malleable medium of clay. The fluidity of Rodin's sculptural style appealed to Simmons more than that of any other sculptor. And with the exception of two very late essays <coughs> on the sculpture of Dora Gordine, Rodin was actually the only sculptor whose art inspired Simmons to critical writing and sculpture. By comparison, his many um, essays on 19th century painting reflect a much more diverse awareness uh, of the scope and variety of the art form of modernity. And I think his essays on painting cannot easily be discussed collectively. Analysis of Simmons as a critic of the visual arts tend to ignore his essays on Rodin. And I think this essay is an attempt to address this imbalance while also trying to locate Simmons's fascination with Rodin more broadly within the fantasy de cult of the moving body. It's important to bear in mind that Simmons was a poet and a dance critic before he began writing about sculpture. His encounter with the Javanese dancers at the 1889 Exposition Universelle in Paris sparked off a very early poem called Javanese Dancers. 
if we could have the next one, please. Um, in which the spectrally mobile face, immobile faces of the dancers contrast with their rhythmically moving hands and feet. And what I'm reading uh, is admittedly only stanzas three and five of that poem, um, but it goes like this. One, two, three, four, step forth, and to and fro, delicately and imperceptibly, now swaying gently in a row, now into threading slow and rhythmically, still with fixed eyes, monotonously still, mysteriously with smiles inanimate, with lingering feet that undulate, with sinews, fingers, spectral hands that thrill the little amber-coloured dancers move like painted figures on a screen, or phantom dancers happily seen among the shadows of a magic grove. Now, considering that this is actually a poem about dance and movement, the shortage of finite verbs is intriguing. You might say that the main movement in the poem could be reduced to two lines. One, two, three, four, step forth, and two and fro, the little amber-coloured dancers move. What we find is a whole pile of qualifying subordinate clauses weighed down by gerunds, adjectives, adverbs and repetitions um, that postpone the verb, the main verb, to move. Movement is, you might say, delayed by immobility, by the ghostly expressionless faces, which in their seductive monotony and seriality form a contrast to the undulating and serpentining extremities of the dancers. The countable individuals at the beginning transform into the collective, and real dancers become shadows or phantoms, two-dimensional projections on the screen, or ethereal ghosts in a magic world. <clears throat> the spectral artificiality of the Javanese dancers contributes to their seductive powers in the interplay between their own fixed eyes and the mesmerised observing gaze of the poet. Could we have an excellent please? So Simmons began his career as a dance critic in 1892, um, writing about places like this, the Alhambra Theatre uh, in Leicester Square, um, and the next one, please, and also um, the Empire Theatre. Leicester Square was then, as it is now, the centre of um, entertainment. Um, Simmons was writing under the pseudonym uh, Silhouette, um, and he was mainly contributing to two journals, The Star and The Sketch, in the course of the 1890s. Um, together with the other members of the Rhymers Club, such as Lionel Johnson and Stowson and William Butler Yeats, he'd frequent these dance establishments um, until the early hours of the night. And I think there are interesting uh, traces of, cr of cross-pollination between his poetry of the 1890s and his dance criticism. <clears throat> his collection of poems called London Nights, which came out in 1895, um, has a prologue which interestingly merges the spectator and the dancer, the poet and the performer, the subject and the object, in a way which is radically different from the strange otherness of the Javanese dancers that we looked at a little while ago. Although the majority of the poems that follow revolve around female figures, the poet or dancer in the opening scene is almost certainly male, um, with a spellbound fascination with the turning female dancers and his puffs of smoke. Could we have the next one, please? My life is like a musical, where in the impotence of rage, chained by enchantment to my stall, I see myself upon the stage, dance to amuse a musical. Tis I that smoke this cigarette, lounge here and wait and laugh for vacancy, and watch the dancers turn, and yet it is my very self I see across the cloudy cigarette. 
The screen of smoke momentarily distorts the image between the observing and the performing self. Do we see a vision, a shadow, or a projection in this narcissistic splitting of the self? The staging of the self on stage and off stage follows the characteristic evolution of so many of Simmons's writings from something very concrete towards the evanescent and the spiritual. The first two stanzas of Simmons's prologue portray an act of recognition. Like other fin de siècle split personalities such as Robert Louis Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll, Simmons's poet must acknowledge that this too is myself. The poems that follow take us into an artificially lit universe in an artificial world where women emerge as exotic Baudelarian flowers, the only organic elements in an otherwise utterly inorganic universe. Simmons's first encounter in Paris with Auguste Rodin coincided with the beginning of his career as a dance critic. It also took place in 1892. Another eight years would pass before Simmons began to engage critically with the sculpture and his works, um, an ongoing involvement bordering, I think, on hero worship, which would last right until 1931, some 14 years after the death of the sculptor. The August Rodin collection at Princeton University holds 12 letters from Rodin to Simmons. Um, Tate Britain houses a small bronze sculpture, which we can see, I think, um, here, um, of a woman on a column which uh, Baudin gave to Simmons and his wife. Uh, and in the British Museum there is a drawing, a presentation drawing of a, of a woman which is also a gift from Baudin um, to Simmons and his wife. Simmons had a serious uh, mental breakdown in 1908 and never really recovered from that me mental breakdown. Um, and was seriously out of pocket. And we know that Rodin actually sent generous amounts um, to help people, uh, or help uh, Simmons and his wife to uh, pay for carers during his, his mental breakdown. So I think you know, there, there was a, a friendship um, that developed over very few years, actually, um, between roughly 1900 and, um, and 1908. If we get the next slide, um, you'll get a little list of the many essays that, um, that Simmons wrote um, from 1900 till 1931 on Rodin. Um, <clears throat> and what you will see is that he kept writing on Rodin for a period of about 30 years, uh, incorporating his earliest essays in his, his later essays. So he kept adding, as it were, to the already existing core of essays on Rodin, smoothing over the transitions between old and new texts. So his very first essay, which was in French, um, only a two-page essay in a kind of catalogue um, to accompany the exhibition in 1900, um, becomes part of um, the 1902 essay that he writes for the Fortnightly Review, which becomes the first essay in Studies and Seven Arts. Um, and then you can see that um, in Studies and Seven Arts, Rodin opens the whole exploration of uh, the diversity of the arts. And by 1921, Rodin becomes a kind of culminating figure in a volume called From Toulouse Lautrec to, to Rodin with some personal impressions. Um, that essay, the 1921-1929 essay, uh, in fact incorporated the 1900 essay and the 1902 essay 
um, and had a few personal impressions added to it. And I suppose an unfriendly view of Simmons's recycling of his own material might think of it in terms of cannibalisation of you know already existing material. But you know, if you were a bit more friendly, you might also see it as a kind of sculptural uh, process of, of constant adding new material, um, starting off with an early bocetto in, in the form of a short poem, a short text about his drawings, um, and ending up with a much longer version um, in 1929. Um, but if we look at that uh, late essay of 1929, uh, we get a sense of uh, a very strong presence of the critic himself. The critic is almost as strongly present in the essay as is um, the object of study, uh, as is Godin himself. So if you could have the next one, please. This is how the, the essay begins. Um, I met Auguste Rodin in Paris, uh, 182 Rue de l'Université, May 1892. The last time I saw him was at a dinner given in Old Burlington Street in 1907. No one who's seen him can ever forget his singular appearance. There before me stood a giant of genius with the timidity of the Colossus, with a face in which strength struggled with passion, with veiled blue eyes that dilated like the eyes of the parrot when he spoke of anything that interested him deeply. He made few gestures. Only when he sat with his great hands folded on his knees, the gestures he made were for a purpose, never for an effect. I was struck by his quietness, his simplicity, a certain caution which comes from a suspicion that is not being taken simply enough. When he talked of books or of his art, of nature, there was always the same freshness and profundity. So the colossal genius of sculpture, famous for his rendering of the divine act of creation in such works as Le Main de Dieu, uh, is celebrated for his power over the clay, and at the same time he's also humanised as a friend, as a fellow spectator, a fellow reader. In this sense, I think Simmons's tribute is not much different from what we find in photography, if you could have the next one, in images like um, Steichen's portraits um, of Wouda, um, of the uh, of the early 20th century, where we see him um, <coughs> actually with a sculpture called La Main de Dieu um, to the left, um, inviting obvious comparisons between the divine act of creation and, and um, and Rodin's own act of creation, or here um, facing the Parcel with the monuments to, to Victor Hugo uh, in the background. So this interesting conflation of, of the divine and yet um, the presence um, is something that, that characterises a lot of the uh, approaches in different media to, to Rodin at the time. Um, so the image of the sculptural Jopens studies in Seven Arts is one of an artist in profound contact with the earth as he moulds organic um, shapes from the clay and makes them his own. Whether Christian god or Promethean deity, Rodin is master of life in art and his moulding of the basis material into great art is in striking contrast to the Renaissance myths of Michelangelo, who, according to the myths, was always attacking the marble block directly. Um, Simon Sorodin as a direct descendant of the Greeks rather than a disciple of Michelangelo. So he was reversing the conventional praise <coughs> of sculpture as mimesis, uh, making his sculpture a modern Pygmalion in a mystic communication with the profoundest powers of nature. Next one, please. So this is a quotation from the 1906 essay. The art of Rodin competes with nature rather than with the art of other sculptors. Other sculptors turn life into sculpture. He turns sculpture into life. His clay is part of the substance of the earth, 
and the earth still clings about it as it comes up and lives. It is at once the flower and the root. That of others is the flower only and the <coughs> plucked flower. That link with the earth, which we find in the unhewn masses of rock from which his finest creations of pure form can never quite free themselves, is the secret of his deepest force. It links his creations to nature's in a single fashion of growth. So the organic, undulating rhythms of Baudin's flower-like sculptures recall Baudin's lifelong fascination with Baudelaire's flowers of evil that can be traced alongside his Dantesque motifs in both his drawings and his sculptures. As a highly literary sculptor, Baudin merged the arts imperceptibly in a manner which was bound to appeal to Simmons. The organic images of earth, trees and flowers were, interestingly enough, actually part of the critical language in which uh, Baudin's art was being discussed. Um, by a lot of the other critics at the time. So, you know, Simmons is not being that original um, in his choice of, um, of metaphors. Um, if, for instance, we look, um, if we can have the next one, um, at the introduction. Oops. No, there we are. That's it. Um, the catalogue to the uh, 1900s um, one-man show had been designed and written by uh, Baudin's great friend, Eugène Carrière, um, the painter, who also again talked about les arbres, les plantes um, that he found in, um, in Baudin's art. Um, and just looking, forget about the Getty images. Um, <laughs> if you look um, at the illustration that was on the cover of, um, of the catalogue, um, you get a sense of, um, of the organic growth, which almost also disappears into a kind of transcendental um, striving um, upwards. Um, we're looking at something which is, which is almost um, a vision. So throughout Simmons's early essay, we perceive the presence of the sculptor himself, who's highly articulate about his art, in conversation with the English critic during a visit to his studio. I think it's important to bear in mind that Simmons was not the first English critic to visit Baudin's studio. Um, there'd been lots of others before him. Um, Baudin already had a major reputation in England, thanks to figures like Alphonse Le Gros, um, William Ernst Henley, Frederick Leighton, and also Simmons's friend, the painter William Rothenstein, who'd been visiting Baudin's studio repeatedly since 1897. Several of Baudin's sculptures um, had found homes in English collections right from uh, the beginnings of the 1880s. Um, so, you know, this is not a, a new name uh, for an English audience. Um, but William Rothenstein is one of the first who actually takes an interest in the drawings uh, in the sculptor's graphic works um, and who was very keen to publicise them to an English audience around the turn of the century. So Rosenstein talks about the drawings and says they were very powerful, classical and romantic at the same time, evoking sculpture which no one, not even Rodin himself, had attempted. They were magnificent drawings, and I was enthusiastic about them, to Rodin's surprise and pleasure, I think. No one, he said, had thought much of these scraps, certainly not enough to acquire them. I assured him that English collectors would jump at the chance, and he confided the drawings to my care. He would talk constantly of his ideals and his work, Sometimes in a curious vein, there was an element of the tantric spirit in Baudin. <coughs> so it was actually Rosenstein who wrote Simmons an introductory letter um, to Baudin, uh, which led to the friendship between the sculptor and the critic. And if we get the next in his memoirs, uh, Rosenstein expresses dislike of Baudin's celebrity status in Europe, 
um, while also rather waspishly portraying Simmons as a veritable amateur of artists who collected them with a the passion others have for China and pictures, poring over his impression of their characters like a connoisseur over his treasures. Um, I think Simmons here sounds like a very unsympathetic collector in a piece of fiction by Henry James, gregarious and obsessive in his search for celebrities. The biographical nature of so many of Simmons's essays on his contemporaries highlights the eyewitness account and the interrelationship between subject and object, um, allowing for a dialogic discourse on arts and literature which never leave the critic entirely out of sight. Yet in a sense, I think Simmons is following a long tradition Bazzari, um, Boswell spring to mind as forebears who in a similar way interwove their own personas with those of the friends and colleagues they were portraying. I think there's no doubt that Rodin's status as le maître um, encouraged such portraiture in which the disciple records the words of the master. Um, Simmons' early writings about Rodin coincide exactly with those of another foreign poet critic, namely the German Rainer Maria Rilke, whose 1903 monograph, uh, which is a distillation of conversations with Baudin while um, Rilke was working as his private secretary, contributed greatly to the sculptor's international fame. Like Simmons, Rilke is both spectator and interlocutor, observing the great man at work and listening to his theories about the art of sculpture and the interrelationship between life and art. Rilke's book has an epitaph, uh, which was a quotation from a Renaissance text, Pomponius Gauricus's De Scultura, 1504. Um, writers work through words, sculptors through matter. And one might think that the author suggested a separation of the two arts, but the text which follows constantly interweaves them and reveals their interdependence. Again, the sculptor is almost inseparable from his works and the metonymic hands of creation become a kind of entry gate into the exploration um, of the sculptor and his works. Rilke says, one thinks of how small man's hands are, how soon they tire, and how little time is given them to move. And one longs to see these hands that have lived like a hundred hands, like a nation of hands that rose before sunrise for the accomplishment of this work. One asks for the man who directs these hands, who is this man? It would almost seem that Simmons's writings um, increasingly desire to capture the great man himself uh, after Simmons's, after Rodin's death in 1917. In the 1929 essay, Simmons's English prose is constantly interspersed with several of the great master's maxims and bon mots in French in an attempt to evoke a voice which has been silenced. A discussion of Judith Cladel's book, Auguste Rodin, Prix sur la vie, serves as a pretext for an inclusion of a range of Rodin's own theories about art in French as a direct way of reaching across the grave, unmediated by translation. Next one, please. And Simmons also drew on Rodin's own artistic testament, his Cathedrals of France, published in 1914. Baudin's own definition of his own, uh, of the interrelationship between architecture and sculpture takes us back, I think, to Simmons's observations about rhythm and sculpture <coughs> at the very opening of Studies in Seven Arts. Baudin says, harmony in living bodies results from the counterbalancing of masses that move. A cathedral is built on the principle of living bodies. Baudin's sculpture, La Cathedrale, 
um, which is a kind of pas de deux, I think, two right hands confronting each other, bears, you might say, some resemblance to the ribbed vault of a Gothic cathedral and combines empty space and the creator's hands into an organic structure which grows out of the earth. It revolves around notions and reflections. The two hands resemble each other, yet they're not mirror images. Similarly, Godin's maxims about equilibrium would seem to echo Simmons, um, or perhaps it's the other way around. He says, neither the light nor the mass of shadow are important. It is the modelling, the equilibrium, that makes itself felt. When a figure is true in its contrast, one feels the equilibrium, and if the equilibrium is good, one senses the possibility of movement of life. Now, Simmons began by writing about the drawings in this very short two-page essay in French, um, published in 1900. Uh, and at the other end of his career, the 1929 essay was illustrated solely with drawings, uh, with Rodin's drawings of women, um, of which there are a great deal, uh, many of which are also uh, in the exhibition that Sasha has, has um, curated. Um, the vibrant outlines of Rodin's drawings reflect the process of capturing the movement of three-dimensional form in a two-dimensional medium. Simmons has chosen focus on the drawings, both as individual works of art in their own right and as preparatory studies for sculpture, stress rhythm and movement and reflect the new interest in Rodin's graphic work, which was just developing. In 1897, the so-called album Goupil was published in a very exclusive edition of 125 copies with facsimiles of 142 of Rodin's early drawings. And if we look, if we can have the next one, Anna, um, if we look at photographs from inside the pavilion um, of 1900, um, you can see that the walls are lined with framed photographs, um, partly of Baudin's sculptures, but also of Baudin's drawings. Um, so the whole, there's, there's an enormous interest, as it were, in photography as a, as a mediating um, medium between um, drawing, sculpture, uh, and the modern viewer. Um, in the pavilion, you'd also find this exclusive album Goupil uh, on display. Um, again, as a testimony to you know, modern methods of reproduction, uh, raising issues of the original versus the copy, um, and the general proliferation and circulation of Baudin's oeuvre in a modern and increasingly technological world. So here are some of those uh, drawings that, um, that Simmons was writing about. Um, and first of all, he was stressing the states of expressive ecstasy in these drawings of nude women, um, which he saw as Baudelaire's femme damnée and the overwhelming sense of eroticism that they conveyed. He responded to the anonymity of the women, um, to the sculptor's complete lack of interest in facial expression. And as a consequence, the women depicted became as serialised and strange as the Javanese dancers that Simmons had captured in his poem of 1889. As he evoked their ecstatic energy in terms of animals and devastating machines. Um, and this is literally what he does. He says, C'est une machine en mouvement monstrueuse et dévastatrice, uh, agissant automatiquement et possédée de la rage de l'animal. Um, so they're the pretty stark descriptions of, of these women. Um, so as he evoked their ecstatic energy in terms of animals and devastating machines, the women lost every trace of humanity. Twisting and turning around their own axes, around a pivot of desire, Baudin's women became mechanical puppets, phantasms, and terrifying in their monotony. To Simmons, Baudin's women are both profoundly primitive and products of the modern world. 
and thus, in a sense, epitomes of the extremes which met at the Exposition Universelle. The next one, please. As the savage representatives of the French Empire were displayed next to the very latest inventions in industry and technology. Now, just across from Wodin's exhibition at the Place de l'Alma, the sculptor's friend, the American dancer Louis Fuller, staged a one-woman show which was fully competitive with Wodin's elaborate self-promotion. So although, strictly speaking, the pavilion of a foreigner, uh, it's interesting to note that Fuller's dance exhibition was actually situated amongst the French and Parisian pavilions, thus testifying to the naturalised state of La Fouleur um, at the turn of the century. It was a purpose-built theatre designed by Henri Sauvage, which was, as you can see, extremely sculptural in form, um, an Art Nouveau masterpiece adorned with a row of marble sculptures of Fuller by Pierre Roche. Its facade consisted of a sculptured stone replica of an undulating stage curtain, recalling Fuller's own senior stage costumes, while simultaneously giving visitors the impression of walking through a curtain and onto the stage set themselves. And in fact, if you move on just slightly, these are some of the sculptures um, that decorated the pavilion. Um, I think it's important to bear in mind that more than anyone at the time, Fuller combined technological innovation with notions of woman as flower and animal. Her dance Serpentine of the mid-1890s had been all the rage in America and Paris, and her transformation of herself of self through uh, dance into butterflies, black moths, lilies, orchids and violets were processes of a metamorphosis in which the dancer's body became the animal or flower forms which gave name to her dance. Um, she had these very elaborate um, costumes that she designed with, um, with the animals that she was imitating um, stitched on um, to them. And in fact, there are a few more images of, um, of Fuller's dances. This is the, the lily dance. Um, as you can see in the, in the drawing on the left, um, Fuller's technique was one of employing enormous bamboo or aluminium rods, um, which she stuck through um, long, long, long um, trains of fabric. Um, and I've got a lovely description of how, of how this actually works. Um, I think one of the most exciting critics on um, Loey Fuller is an American critic called Rhoda Gallic, and she describes um, Fuller's technique. So if we go on to the next, I have a quotation of, of what, how this actually worked. So underlying all the sculptural play with fabric was Fuller's system of a hooked bamboo and aluminium rods that were sewn into the underside of the silk. These rods, patented in 1894, essentially became extensions of the dancer's arms, allowing Fuller to hold a costume as far as 10 feet from her body. The overhead shapes formed by the fabric and rods required considerable force and control on Fuller's part. Once aloft, the shape spun partly out of centrifugal force in the manner of clay pots taking shape on the spinning wheel. In the case of her 1895 Dance of the Lily, a costume of 500 yards of thin white Chinese silk reached a height of 20 feet over her head. Rudigalic goes on to comment that Fuller was neither entirely human nor entirely machine, but an on-stage enactment of the fin de siècle and modernism's newly blurred boundaries between these realms. If we get another couple of slides. Um, and I am rather fascinated by her <laughs> rather extravagant use of, of Chinese silk. Um, can we have another one, Ella? Um, 
here you can see the lawns um, very clearly. Um, so many of the stage effects involve sophisticated use also of electricity uh, and of stage inventions like the glass pedestal, which is lit from below. Can we get the next one? I think we've got an image of um, Lily Fuller on her pedestal lit uh, by electricity from below. And uh, on your left, you can see the, the glass pedestal um, upon which she soars. And of course, the glass pedestal is transparent, so it literally looks as if she was dancing on air. Um, there on the stage. So she was challenging notions of gravity, um, and from the spectator's seat, it looks yeah, as if she was dancing on air. And Fuller was, in effect, turning 19th century ballet upside down with her extended arms and hands, just the counterparts of the modern ballerina's extended feet and legs. And rather than revealing her body, she was actually concealing it behind those swirls of white fabric, transforming her physical self into pure aesthetic form, moving towards a spiritual image which appealed. Um, to Simmons. So the rhythmical hide-and-seek of her body, the sense that now you see it, now you don't, as she folded and unfolded her arms, allowed for a new kind of rhythmic viewing, much favoured also by one of Simmons's other French heroes, Stéphane Mallarmé, um, whose repeated praise of La Foulère celebrated her as the very essence of nothingness, a pure idea, a disembodied sign. As an extension of Mallarmé's poetics, of language working primarily through veiling and illusion. Lofilla's art of dance played with spatial and oral rhythm in a manner which was entirely new. With its merging of form and content, Fuller's dancing body provided the meeting ground for such rhythms. If we could have the next one, please. Um, Felicia McCarran, um, who's another interesting critic on Fuller, comments that like music, like poetry at its best, Fuller's veils work rhythmically shifting rhythm from sound to silk. For Malami, rhythm makes evocation, illusion or suggestion possible because it functions in language like the veil, seeming to hide while in fact it reveals. And like the veil, rhythm works through condensation. It is an overlapping rather than an excision or deletion. For Malami, rhythm is a way to describe the form that structures both poetry and dance, language and the body, the form that structures but that cannot be seen. So unlike much 19th century dance, Fuller's dances were non-narrative. They were moving towards abstraction, the abstraction of the sign, in a way not unlike what Simmons was trying to achieve with some of his poetry. Fuller may have approached ideal nothingness for Mallarmé, but for another critic, for Jean Cocteau, the experience of the dancer was um, very different. She may have been the spirit of the age, the epitome of the fin de siècle, but apparently the sheer physical presence of Fuller resounds in Cocteau's description. I retain only one vibrant image from the Exposition Universelle. Madame Loewe Fuller, a fat, ugly American woman with glasses, atop a pedestal manoeuvring great waves of supple silk, creating innumerable orchids of light and fabric unfurling, writhing, disappearing, turning, floating. Let us all hail this dancer who created the phantom of an era. Now, Fuller's entrepreneurial nature, which had partly manifested itself in her patenting, taking patents on, um, on her devices and on her electrical equipment, um, also went beyond the staging of herself. Uh, and at her very own initiative, she staged the very first exhibition of Wodan's works at the National Arts Club in New York in 1903. It was apparently a very brief exhibition, which only lasted for about a week. 
Um, but um, she was very keen, as it were, to, uh, to promote Rodin to an American audience. And of course, what Fuller and Rodin shared was an enormous interest in the power of hands. Um, already in 1896, a journalist had pointed out that Fuller broke significantly with centuries of dance tradition. He says, since prehistoric times, dancers have danced with their feet, but Loewy dances with her hands. Um, and we're going back to this whole business of, of the hand. Um, if we get the next slide, I think. Yeah. Um, I took casts of Lowe Fuller's hand. Um, and in 1914, she had a whole series of photographs of her hands taken in which she created sculptural shapes, evoking some of the organic shapes of Wodan's oval. And those uh, photographs are now actually in the, the Wodan archives. Um, and I haven't got slides of them, sadly. They're very hard to find. They are, yeah. Um, they, had a, they had a little publication on hands which shows some of these, <laughs> some of these photographs of, of Lowy Fuller's hands. But they're there. Um, and in 1914, she also choreographed a little um, dance that she calls La Danse des Mains, uh, in homage to the sculptor and his exploration <coughs> of the expressive potential of the hand. Um, and apparently, because um, again, there are a couple of photographs um, that I've haven't been able to get access to. Um, apparently what happened was that her entire body was shrouded in darkness, uh, leaving only her hands to dance in the light of very strong projectors, giving the audience a kind of puppet show, minus the puppets, you might say, as her hands danced and evoked different emotional states of mind. The event itself and the carefully posed hands in some very arty gelatine print photographs invite, of course, comparisons to Rodin's fascination with fragmented hands and his own use of photography as a means of circulating his art to a wider audience. It's also interesting to note that the dancer and the sculptor um, employed the same photographer, Eugène Truyer, who'd been Baudin's court photographer since 1896. He took several photographs of Fuller dancing or posed next to some of Baudin's sculptures. Um, and in her Danse des Mains, Fuller's hands which were, seemed to be detached from the rest of her body, took on a life of their own somewhere between nature and art. In the spotlight, they perform according to the very latest technological inventions. Electricity enabled a new fragmented version of the dancer's body, a different kind of hide-and-seek, leaving only a partial view of the performer. Fuller was celebrated in 1900 as la fée électricité, um, who was heralding the rhythm and energy of the new century. And she was famous for her special artifacts. She'd sometimes um, bring her crew of about 30 different electricians along um, for her shows. Um, so you might say that the rhythm of the modern pervaded every aspect of her performance. I think one cannot overestimate the importance of the Exposition Universelle as a forum for cultural and artistic exchange. This was where Simmons encountered the full range of Baudin's works, and this was also where the young Isadora Duncan, fresh from America, encountered the art of both Fuller and Baudin. Duncan had moved to Europe in 1900 with her brother Raymond, first settling in London, where she took rather an unusual approach to the study of dance. Um, and I can strongly recommend uh, her autobiography published in 1928, simply called My Life. It's a, it's a wonderfully good read. Um, so here she says about her um, induction into um, 
the English art world, we spent most of our time in the British Museum, where Raymond made sketches of all the Greek vases and bas-reliefs, and I tried to express them to whatever music seemed to me to be in harmony with the rhythms of the feet, and the Dionysiac set of the head, and the tossing of the thyrsus. Apparently similar scenes played themselves out in the Louvre, where the guards found the behaviour of the dancing and drawing duo highly suspect. Duncan's methods may well have been inspired by uh, Maurice Emmanuel's La Danse Grecque Antique, book of, of 1896, which drew a series of parallels between the postures seen on vases and bas reliefs and tanagra figurines and the postures and positions of modern dance, with special reference to the interrelationship between graphic and bodily rhythm. The next one. No, actually, leave it there. Sorry. Yeah. Um, the book was illustrated with primitive line engravings, as you can see, uh, partly from antique art and also with stylized outlines of modern dance positions, alongside a few specimens of modern chronophotography of a woman dancing, either in the dress and postures of a Tanagra dancer or her modern equivalent. So if you take the next one, that would be great. Um, here we have um, the modern dancer. Um, and <laughs> sorry, <laughs> that's fine. And the next one um, has a woman dressed, as it were, in um, the draperies, so familiar from the tiny figurines which have been excavated in the 1870s, um, imitating uh, some of the postures that um, that they took. So the path, in other words, from antiquity to modernity was short in fin de siècle Paris. And very soon, Duncan was touring with La Fille Electricité and entering the studio well of Rodin, who also paid the dancer a reciprocal visit. The latter experience was nothing short of a very erotic pagan encounter with the great god Pan and a missed opportunity of the complete merging of sculpture and dance. And if we could have the next one. So this is again from, um, from Duncan's autobiography. He gazed at me with lowered lids, his eyes blazing, and then with the same expression that he'd before his works, he came toward me. He ran his hands over my neck, breast, stroked my arms, and ran his hands over my hips, my bare legs and feet. He began to knead my whole body as if it were clay, while from him emanated a heat that scorched and melted me. My whole desire was to yield to him my entire being, and indeed I would have done so if it had not been that my upbringing caused me to become frightened, and I withdrew, threw my dress over my tunic, and sent him away bewildered. What a pity. <laughs> How often I have regretted this childish miscomprehension which lost to me the divine chance of giving my virginity to the great god Pan, the mighty Rodin. Art and all life would have been the richer thereby. And funnily enough, when I was checking the quotation, I realised the last um, three or four lines actually have been left out in the English <laughs> edition of, of the autobiography. <laughs> <laughs> this is the juicy American edition. Um, so the cultural clash between the Puritan American and the sensuous Frenchman, between an artist of the feet and an artist of the hands, is amusing, of course. And I think in Duncan's account, we sense the mean ad in the making. The savage god, seeing through his hands, approaches the organic world through touch, and transforms cold flesh into melting desire. Duncan's swift feet, however, soon took her back to the great sculptor, and they struck up a lifelong friendship. In 1908, the present Musée Rodin at the Hôtel Biron in the Rue de Varennes housed one of, of Duncan's dance studios, while it was also <coughs> providing studio space for Cocteau, Rodin, Rilke, and Matisse. 
and apparently the place became the site of such raucous entertainments, Roman parties and fetes champêtres, that the French government, which owned the site, um, had to shut it down. So Duncan's natural dance on bare feet in thin Greek-inspired tunics which revealed the contours of the body underneath and allowed maximum freedom of movement formed an interesting counterpart to Fuller's veiled metamorphosis of her techno body into butterflies and lilies. The freely flowing rhythms of paganism revived, moved in quite other directions than the technologically adept Fuller, who employed fluorescent paints, x-rays and enormous amounts of kilowatt for her performances. Inspired by Friedrich Nietzsche's The Birth of Tragedy of 1872, and also by the Cambridge Ritualists, Isadora Duncan saw a strong interconnection between the choric dance of Greek tragedy and the ritual dances in honour of Dionysus. And a Greek dance forms part of the revival of the figure of the Menad at the fin de siècle. And I've got a couple of photographs of, of Duncan looking very monadic, throwing her hair backwards, um, as Menads are supposed to do. Poets and scholars like um, Ave Mary Robinson, Michael Field and Jane Harrison were all drawing parallels between the unleashings of sexual and creative energy of the Menads and the phenomenon of the new woman. Duncan's free dance was part of the liberation of the female body from the constraints of corsets, shoes or the schools of classical ballet. And in the Greek cult of the nude and in the direct contact with the earth, she found a universal freedom transcending time. In her artistic manifesto called The Dance of the Future from around 1902, Duncan made it clear that her project was not a revivalist one, but an international aesthetic and feminist movement, striving towards complete harmony between soul and body, self and society. The Dance of the Future will be a new movement, a consequence of the entire evolution which mankind has passed through. To return to the dances of the Greeks would be as impossible as it is unnecessary. We are not Greeks and therefore cannot dance Greek dances. But the dance of the future will have to become again a high religious art as it was with the Greeks. For art which is not religious is mere merchandise. The dancer of the future will be one whose body and soul have grown so harmoniously together that the natural language of the soul will have become the movement of the body. The dancer will not belong to a nation, but to all humanity. She will dance not in the form of a nymph, nor fairy, nor coquette, but in the form of a woman in her greatest and purest expression. She will realise the mission of woman's body and the holiness of its parts. She will dance the changing life of nature, showing how each part is transformed into the other. From all parts of her body shall shine radiant intelligence, bringing to the world the message of the thoughts and aspirations of thousands of women. She shall dance the freedom of woman. As in Simmons's The World as Ballet, Duncan's notion of the dancer is gendered. The radiant image of the female dancer who blends soul and body into pure expression is an idealised abstraction of woman. But unlike Simmons's symbolist aestheticised image, Duncan's vision is highly politicised. The fact that the silent image had now been given a voice, and even an articulate one, stressed the gendered tension between male spectator, critic, poet, and female dancer, and male sculptor, female model. The radiant intelligence of Duncan's dancer of the future is one which applies both to the command of her body and her mind. Change, transformation, the notion of one movement leading to another are all part of the imagined choreography of Duncan's dancer 
who is a modern Mina in control of her movements. Her art is self-begotten. She is both dancer and choreographer, and her solo dance is monolithic in an almost sculptural way. The new sculpture and the new dance at the fin de siècle broke with conventions of schooling and academies. Neither Rodin or Fuller nor Duncan were the products of established art or ballet schools. Their innovative developments of art forms which had existed since antiquity sprang from complete artistic freedom and a lack of the constraint imposed by formative professional training. Yet once they had established their idiosyncratic styles and methods in the art world, they set up schools and disciples who perpetuated their art. Could I have the next one, please? Rodin? Surrounds himself in his studio with slabs of marble, Isadora said. I want to surround myself also, my block of marble, my pupils. Her disciples, who were popularly known as the Isadorables, trained by her in Germany and France, um, and they became clones of herself in their dresses and their modes of dancing. And when in 1908, La formed her ensemble, Libelli Louis Fouler, the company consisted of girls whose physiognomies resembled the founder's own. The girls were not known under their own names, but were given the names of some of Fuller's dances, and thus became reflections both of herself and her art. And we've got one last image here. Um, in fact, it's all, it's all Fuller's pupils underneath those waves of, um, of silk um, here. The desire to see and stage the self in a constant rhythmic alternation between veiling and unveiling, antiquity and modernity, is a very fundamental aspect of the flux of the fin de siècle. As the fluid rhythms of dance and sculpture met and merged, the ancient dream of the moving statue took new forms. It was no longer the cold marble statue of Pygmalion turning into flesh, but rather the malleable organic material of clay modulating into great lengths of white silk and air, assisted by the shaping powers of electricity in an altogether ethereal act of begetting. Thank you. Well, thank you for, uh, I mean, uh, broadening the subject that I've been concentrating on for the past um, two and a half to three years. You sure? I, I think since I won't necessarily remember it. Um, my response is, well, it's not, it doesn't have a title, it's really just a, um, I, I thought about um, having read uh, Lena's paper, the parallels and 